Hope y'all are well. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 6. Um, it feels like forever since I've actually preached from the book of Acts. Um, Jack preached a few weeks ago, and then I preached a sermon on eldership, and then Joe preached last week. So I feel like um, it's been forever since I've been in the book of Acts um, preaching it. So we'll uh, do a little bit of a recap for us all so we can kind of know what's going on, and then I will... Uh, Start at Acts chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. I'm going to pray, and then we will we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We know that it is powerful. We know that it's something we shouldn't be ashamed of. We know that it does amazing work. It's living. It's active. It convicts us, equips us, teaches us, trains us in righteousness. Um, so many things. Lord. And so I pray that we would give our minds and hearts over to this amazing sufficiency of the scripture, that it is able to do so many things. And so as we, as we look at it now, I pray that we would, in our hearts and minds, put ourselves under its authority because it's under the authority of Christ and that we would, all the things that it says, submit our hearts to it. I pray for us all here that as we look at it, that we won't just be taught information, but that we would see Christ, we would understand who Christ is, that the gospel would be clear, and that we would also have uh, things that we can see, Lord, that you might be calling us to, changes that we can make in our life out of worship. And so we pray that these things would all happen. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 6, so you can open up to Acts chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first section, uh, verses 1 through 7. Historically, this text has been understood as maybe when the first deacons of the church were selected. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to, as I look, talk through it today, you'll, you'll get my, my, my thoughts. I'm not sure that it's, as Luke is writing, his prescription on how to choose deacons in the church. Um, I think he's describing what's happening. I think there are, there are principles that you can pull from there, certainly that are good if you're going to do that. But I'm not sure that's Luke's, you know, work that he's trying to do as he's writing about the beginning of the church. I don't think he gets, you know, what I could do with Acts 6, 1 through 7 is describe how the first deacons could be selected and how that can be happened in every church that ever happens um, from here for eternity. I don't think that, I think, you know, other churches, I mean, other, other texts are better to look at you know, like First Timothy 3, etc. So um, I think what he's doing here is actually s- still staying in the same mindset of what's going on in, in chapter 5. So uh, this is what thus far has been happening. If This is my little recap, <clears throat> kind of summarizing some of the stuff that you've learned over the last couple of weeks with Jack and Joe. Um, so the apostles have, since they've been filled with the Spirit been bold now to preach the gospel, bold to share their faith, bold to heal, bold to do what God's called them. God called them in Acts chapter 1, if you remember, verse 8, to do this. And this is, this is going to be the way the rest of the book is, is outlined. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, chapter 2, and you will be my witnesses, rest of book of Acts, in Jerusalem, 
Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is outlined as they go and reach Jerusalem. And after they've done that, how they go and reach Judea and Samaria and how they eventually at the end of the book of Acts go to the ends of the earth. So the outline of the book of Acts is going to follow that. We're still in the Jerusalem section. As a matter of fact, it's actually going to say that in verse 7, that there's going to be multiplied greatly in Jerusalem of disciples. So that's what's still happening here. And so as they've been obedient to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as we're going through this, they're filled with the Spirit. They become bold. They're healing people. And then, then there's been things where the enemy sees, uh, the devil sees that they're having success. At least 8,000, if not almost up to 10,000 people now have been saved in this short amount of time. And so the enemy is not happy with that. So he's going to throw uh, at them uh, opportunities or temptations to move them off mission. So what we've seen is the apostles have been jailed. They've been told not to talk about Jesus. They say they have to talk about Jesus. Uh, They've been beat and they've been told not to talk about Jesus. And then it even says at the end of chapter five that after they were beat, verse 41, they left rejoicing. They're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So we see there that they're rejoicing because they were uh, beat for or persecuted, if you will, for the faith. So as we looked over in the middle part of Acts chapter five, when Jack was preaching, he was talking about the obedience to the Lord. No matter what's going on, we need to be obedient to the Lord, what he's calling us to. Joe, uh, at the end of chapter five, as he was preaching, talked about the providence and the hand of God uh, and that the Lord is good no matter what's happening and that we should give our minds and hearts over to that. But as you kind of take a big step back and look at all of chapter five as we're leading into chapter six, there's attacks against the church to get them off mission. Attacks are being hurled at them because they're having success, because at least eight to 10,000 people have been saved. Um, Attacks are being hurled at them to pull them away from doing that, being obedient to Acts chapter one, verse eight, being obedient in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 to go make disciples. Where we see in in chapter five, in verses one through, you know, at least 11, where there's, <clears throat> there's a chance for them to have corruption, where Ananias and Sapphira were being hypocrites, they have corruption, where we're holding back money. And that was an opportunity, or a temptation at least, to be drawn away from mission where the church could have focused in on that for a long time and not stayed on mission. Instead, that's not what happened. And as you keep going through the, the rest of chapter five, another temptation to be drawn off mercy, uh, mission is when persecution came uh, and they were, as they said, counted, they counted it worthy. That was a chance for them to say, you know what, this whole being obedient to Acts chapter 1, 8 thing, we don't really like so, because we're getting killed. So we're going we're gonna to leave being on mission. And another instance in, in Acts chapter 6 now, instead of corruption like the beginning of 5 or persecution like the end of chapter 5, in chapter 6 we've seen distraction. Distraction is a temptation now for them to be pulled off mission. Distraction maybe isn't the best word because I don't want for us to think that what happens helping people that are poor is a distraction. Distraction in the sense which we're going to get into is that the apostles themselves need to stay doing what God's called them. And they're going to set up another team and no one's better than anybody else to take care of another need. So the distraction is for the apostles to leave what they've been called to do to go do this. So... They're not going to do that so that they're not going to be pulled over into that. They're going to set up another team so that the church can keep going forward, so that the church can continually stay on mission. So I say all that to say, I think that's what Luke's writing about. Luke's writing about in chapter 5 as we move into 6, where the, the tempter or the enemy is trying to move the church away from mission because of the great success they're having, and here's them not being distracted or not being pulled over into that, but staying on mission. (coughs) 
So I think it's determined to stay on mission. I think that that's what we're looking at. So while there are principles that you can look at as you're looking at chapter 6 about setting up a diaconate ministry, a deacon ministry in your church, I don't think that's the, the text that you can look at. You could look at 1 Timothy 3. I think that this is more about the church staying on mission. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and we'll come back and we'll take a look at everything that's going on. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among, your, from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is, if you will, from chapter 5 to chapter 6, the third attack of the enemy to pull them off the church off mission. Corruption in the beginning of chapter 5, persecution at the end of chapter 5, and now the third um, distraction, if you will, from the enemy, trying to move the apostles away from what the Lord has called them specifically to do, the ministry of word, to go serve tables. Um, so if, here's kind of the big picture. The attack of the devil is trying to move these masterfully successful apostles away from making disciples. The amazing part is that these guys are not CEOs. You know, they're not Steve Jobs. They are redneck fishermen that the Lord is using to lead a huge movement. And they're very, very successful. And because they're seeing such great success, they need to step up and have amazing leadership insights to continually and um, discipline to stay in the calling that the Lord has given them. And as we look at this, there's a chance for them to worry about the social administration or the, the daily distribution of food, which is a worthy wor- worrying. I mean, that's, a, that's an important thing. The Lord's called them to do that. But here, it's not, it's, it's not wrong for, for anyone to do that, but if they were the ones to go do that rather than somebody else, then they would end up neglecting what they've been called to do in chapter, four, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, the prayer and the ministry of the word, the prayer and preaching. And if that happens, if you don't have the leaders who quite, are quite successful, obviously called by God, leading in what's important for them and their calling, prayer and preaching, if they go over and they start wait, waiting the tables and making sure they get their food, then nobody is doing that. And this mission where we all are playing our part, falls off the rails. We're not, we're not on mission anymore because mission incorporates not just the proclamation of the word, but also doing the, the good deeds or the social justice or the social administration or however. All of this is incorporated into mission. And as everybody in the church plays their part, then this is going well. But if, if, if everybody comes over here, then we're not doing that. Or if everybody goes over there, they're not doing this. And so... That's what we're seeing here. So I think in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, this is more about the church, specifically the apostles, 
determining to stay on mission even though a third attack comes from the enemy to get them off mission. So um, the four points will be really, really, really easy. They're just one word. And it's just kind of like, you know, what's the problem? What's the solution? What's the principle? What's the result? So first is the problem. You can see it right there in verses one and two. Uh, so we're going to go back and I want, I want to point out some things. Some of, the, some of the details in the text are huge for us to make sure we're getting everything from what's going on. So now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's huge. The disciples were increasing in number. About 8,000 people had been saved. No one had done discipleship yet. It wasn't like, oh, all we got to do is just go to the master plan of evangelism by Coleman and hand them that book. They can read how to be a disciple and everything's good. There, there was no like, oh, just go talk to the old guy who's been discipling people for years and he can teach you. No one had ever done that yet. Jesus told them to go make disciples. Now it's time to make disciples. There's eight to 10,000 people getting saved. The, the apostles are tasked with this. And not only that, as you see, there's an increase. This is a busy season. People are continually getting saved. The apostles, when it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in the number, the apostles were being faithful to their calling and preaching and prayer. And lots of people are getting saved and they need to continually stay faithful to their calling and preaching and prayer so that these new disciples continually can be, can be, can be helped and grown. So it is a quite busy season. So <clears throat> this highlights for us the problem. And then it says, as there's... Lots of people getting saved and the, the apostles need to stay true to their calling. A complaint, literally murmuring, grew in the Hellenists. By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So Hellenists, your, your, your Bible might have, like, have a little one. You can look down in the footnote there and that just means Greek-speaking Jews. So there were, in, the, in the church group here, there were two groups of people that were Jewish. The Greek-speaking Jews in the minority and the Hebrew-speaking Jews in the majority. And as they were making sure each time those that were widowed, you can see a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here comes murmuring. This is a, as I said, a huge test, a huge opportunity. Is the church going to stay on mission or are they going to move off mission and go to something uh, everybody go help that one thing happen and, and make sure everything's fine and then not stay on mission. What's going to happen? Here's, here's a, a huge opportunity to either get taken off mission or stay on mission. Either leave your calling or stay on your calling. So what's exactly, what's exactly happening? You've got widows, which if we remember, James 127, this is tr true religion, is helping those who are widows and, and poor and in distress. We know that the church themselves have always been called to help those that are, that are outcasts, especially widows. Widows had no means of making money for themselves and there was no government assistance at the time where you could just go to the government and they could give you food and the widows could be taken care of. The church, um, in a large part, took care of the widows. And just a, just a reminder, we've, we've gone over this before, but I'll read a couple verses to you just to see how the pattern was already playing out in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 44. And all who, believed, um, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all that any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. That's Acts chapter 2. So it's painting a picture of everyone's getting fed, no matter who they are, even the widows, even though they can't necessarily earn. Everybody's collectively putting all their resources together and everybody's being taken care of. You can also see that in chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Verse two now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and 
and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common and great power um, of the apostles and were giving in the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them and bought the proceeds of it was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each that had need. So we, we, we have that in the background in chapter two and four where anybody that had need, especially those that were widowed, <clears throat> the, the deep desire, the goal was that they would be met. But what's happening here is as that's happening, I don't think it was intentional. It was just poor administration, poor supervision because they're still in their brand new kind of figuring out their systems. There was an oversight so that the widowed Greek-speaking Jews in the minority were kind of being neglected in the daily distribution and the Hebrew-speaking widows, they were being, um, their needs were being met more, more often and I guess in, in a more respected way. So the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews started murmuring. Hey, we're not getting the food, but they're getting the food. What's going on? How come they're getting it and not us? So here the problem arises where someone in the minority was not getting uh, a part of the, as it says, daily distribution in verse one. By the way, just incidentally, um, this is one of the reasons why this verse, this set of verses is used for, for how you set up deacons. The word distribution there is actually kind of like the daily service which is what deacons are, they're servants. And so the, the root word of the word deacon comes from distribution. We're gonna see it again in verse two. We're actually gonna see it again later. I'm gonna make my po- another point. But here, this is the daily distribution. And that, that word distribution it has its root word diakonos or deacon. So they're not getting the daily food. And then the apostles, as this problem arises in the 12, that's the, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, everybody, bring them in. And they said, here it is. It's not right that we should give up the preaching the word of God to serve diakonos, deacon, deacon or serve tables to make sure that they have this particular food. They said, we need to focus on not just preaching of the word, but you can even see it in verse four, prayer in the preaching ministry of the word. We need to focus on those particular things. It's not right that we should serve tables and give up this. So implicit in this, I think Luke's trying to help us see is that when they say it's not right, someone in, in the congregation was saying, someone in the, in the full number of the disciples were saying, hey, apostles, you're the leaders you should go over there and hand out the food. It's your job. You should be the people that go over here and start handing it out to all the Greek-speaking Jews and widows and all the Hebrew and make sure that this has happened. You don't have to do that. You can do this because you're the leaders. And they're saying, no, no, no. It's not right that we should give up what the Lord has specifically called us to do with prayer and preaching and do that. We shouldn't stop what we're doing in order for that to happen. That's important but we should not stop. So what's the problem? As we're looking at it, what's the problem? On the kind of the surface, the problem is this. Greek-speaking widows aren't getting the food that they, they should be given each day. They should be in, um, included in the food distribution each time. The minority should not be neglected. The minority should also be treated like everyone else and they should be getting it. That's, that's kind of the on the surface problem. But there's a deeper problem. There's a deeper problem that that thing, that on the surface problem is creating. The deeper problem is this, and this is huge. The apostles, the preachers of the word, those that have to do the ministry of the word are 
being tempted or words are being said to them that are trying to pull them away from their calling of God to come do something else. Neither one's more important, but you need both. And the deeper problem is you need to come over here and do this because this is really the mission, not that. Both are the mission. So the deeper calling or the deeper problem, I should say, is disciples are, it seems to be words being said to them, are being pulled away from their calling. Now, let me say this real first, real fast. It's easy as we're hearing this to hear in your mind a hierarchy uh, of of people, painting people as more important than the others, whether it be in the distribution that the Greek-speaking Jews are more important than the Hebrews, or even in the leadership that those that preach are more important than those who distribute food. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I don't think that's what Luke's trying to get at. I think, as a matter of fact, I'll make a case in a little bit, he's actually not trying to do that with the words he uses. He's trying to say, everybody is equally important in this. However, everybody's gifted differently, called differently, and with everything they can, needs to fulfill the calling that God has called them in so that the church is operating and functioning correctly so that we stay on mission. Because if the apostles leave this and go over to this, no one's doing the word. Or if those that are going to do the social administration say that they want to preach too, then no one's meeting the needs of the poor. And both of those can't happen. So the problem is people are being tempted And here's the subtlety of this third problem, to pull away from the calling that they have. And if that happens, then the success, the moving forward, the mission of the church is thrown off and it's off the rails. If if Ananias and Sapphira had had infused other people with their um, corruption, the ministry of the church would have been thrown off. If persecution would have thrown them off and say, ah, we don't want to do this anymore. We could die. Forget this. Let's go do something else. The ministry of the church is thrown off. Here, if people, whenever, wherever they're called, decide to not do that because they see something instead of everybody doing what they're called to do, the ministry of the church is thrown off. And I think that's the larger, deeper problem. So as we're looking at this, that's the problem. Let's, let's stop and let's ask this. What are your specific gifts? What, are your, what is your specific calling, if you will, um, to the church? And when I say church, I'm not talking church universal. Uh, that's important, but I'm talking about local church. I'm talking about the, the local church, Remedy Church. What are your specific giftings? If you don't know, just ask somebody that's a Christian that you hang out with, that you've been around for, you know, two or three, four, four, five, six months. What do you see are some of the giftings that I have and how can I serve this church? And here's the question. Now that you know that, are you fulfilling that calling? Are you living in those gifts so that the mission of Jesus goes forward through this particular local church? That's the problem here, is that people aren't living in their calling or living in their giftings. Now, don't hear this wrong. This isn't, hey, everybody stay in your lane. You stay in your calling, I'll stay in my calling, and the church goes, because obviously we get moved over here and, here and there all the time. Like, I'm not saying that if I'm the since I'm an elder, one of my main things is teaching the word that I can't hang out with you and hang out and and give out food to those who need it. I'm not saying that this isn't a stay in your lane sermon at all. It's instead, we all need to know our giftings and callings. And while we certainly will move out of that and help other things, we have to be obedient to the calling we have. We have to be in order for the church to move forward properly, for the church to function in mission. And we're, we're doing all that we can see Ephesians 4. We have to do that. So 
It doesn't matter what your giftings are. It doesn't matter what your role is in the church, whether you would think it'd be big or small, even though I don't like the hierarchy uh, words. What's your calling? Are you staying true to those giftings and calling? Or are you allowing yourself to be distracted away from some of those things? Are you allowing yourself to just kind of let other people do those things because, hey, it's happening. You shouldn't do that. I I can remember whenever I was serving in a church (coughs) and there was a lot of problems and uh, the pastor at that particular time, uh, it was a long drawn out situation where the pastor eventually left and um, I was the number two, if you will, and really the only, like not, I was the second, I I was associate pastor. I'm I'm trying not to like paint a bathroom joke there saying number two. So anyway, sorry, I put that in your head and I shouldn't have. Ah, anyway, so there was two of us. He was a pastor and big issues happened where he had to leave the church and I was the associate and there was nobody else. And as that happened, um, I had to come and I had to preach the first sermon at, at, at kind of in this big long transition. I'd been there for a couple of years. And so I remember I, I preached from Ephesians 4 and the church that was there that I was at, I mean, had a lot. And I mean, a lot of seasoned men. They had been in the faith for a long time and they were comfortable. They were comfortable. Like they, they weren't, many of them weren't using their giftings in the church. There were a lot of men that were just, because the church was functioning, because the church was happening, and these guys had lots of gifts, um, they, they really weren't doing anything because the church was kind of moving forward. And the, the sermon I preached was, hey, we've been through a big transition, and here's the deal. All of you men and women who have been kind of sitting on the sidelines need to step up and start taking part of the church. There's no way it's gonna happen without you. And I had several come to me afterwards and said, you know, it's been years. I've just been kind of sitting on the side, letting it happen, been here week in, week out. Or one guy, I can remember one guy saying, well, I kind of let that my, my, my ministry be after church on Sunday, I would stack the chairs and feel like, well, the chair stack in ministry's done. Hey, hey, I did my job for the church. And I realized, you know, like, that's not enough. I mean, my kids can stack chairs, right? We need people that are adults that can step up, that have amazing gifts for everybody to step in. That's what we're talking about here is if you have been kind of sitting on the sideline or you know your giftings and callings, you know how you can contribute to the mission of the church and yet because you're not, you're not doing it because it's kind of already happening or maybe you just don't feel confident, you're, you're sitting there. The question that's arising here or the problem is not are you being you know, neglected in the daily distribution. The problem is what's, what's in the apostles. Are you stepping up and staying true to the giftings and callings that you had that are clear that other people have come along? Are you, are you being distracted? Are you being a part of moving the church forward here in this city and mission? Or are you just kind of letting it happen because other people kind of do it and you don't have to worry about it? We need every one of you. So the metaphor of the body is you need fingers and toes and ears. You need everything. It's not like, well, yeah, I don't need my ear. Just throw it off. It's no big deal. It's not like we don't need you. We absolutely need you. My ears are just as important as my eyes. I want them both. Like, and that's the same with you. Whatever your giftings are, whatever your callings are, no one's more important. Every one of you are a part of the mission. So let's all be determined in the mission to say, yes, whatever my giftings are, I am going to step up and absolutely, in this particular church body, use those giftings so that the church is moving forward in mission. So that's the first, that's the problem. Second, what's the solution? I love the solution. I mean, remember, these are fishermen coming up with these things. This is impressive. They didn't go to business school, right? They say, well, let's do this. Here's how they know the answers. See Acts 2. 
They were filled with the Spirit, and because they're filled with the Spirit, the Lord is giving them amazing leadership skills. What's the solution? Big problem, Hellenists aren't getting their, the, the Hellenists, uh, widows aren't getting their, their, their daily d- distribution of food. And apostles, you have the opportunity here to be drawn off uh, what your calling is. What's the solution? Verse two, verse two. The 12 summoned, look at this, the full number of the disciples. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. They're still in Jerusalem. It hasn't spread. There's no diaspora yet. There's no dispersion of Christians everywhere yet. Everybody's still in Jerusalem. And it says they they pulled in the full number of the disciples. That could mean that at least 8,000 people are pulled in on this decision. Now, that that seems like, oh, that's a lot of work. But I think it's wise in the end. So it's not handed down in some kind of dictatorial decision. This is what we're doing. The 12 summoned everybody there. And they said, they made their case. Hey, listen, it's not right. It seems like there's somebody saying that we shouldn't do this, that we shouldn't keep preaching, that we need to go, we need to go serve tables. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. That word serve, by the way, is diakonos. And it's the verb form of the noun deaconess. It's the predominant reason why this text is used for uh, how you should outline your deacon ministry. Anyway, um, they said we shouldn't serve tables. Therefore, brothers... This is, this is genius. They pull everybody together and they say, you pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So they let them make the decision on who is going to pick out. The disciples didn't pick them. Brilliant leadership, I think. Or else, because, I mean, anybody they picked, likely there would have been some wrong picks, right? So they let the people pick them. Um, and the people did pick them. And it says, pick from among you seven men. The fact that these are men only, I think, means nothing. I just think it's in a male-dominated culture. And I, that's, I think this is one of the reasons why it's not necessarily the first deacons. Because there's clearly diaconesses, if you will, um, in, in Romans chapter 12 or 16 with Phoebe. Um, and one of these particular deacons preaches a sermon. I mean, a, Stephen preaches an unbelievable sermon in chapter 7. One of the key things of an elder is that they're able to teach, and Stephen's like preaching such a good sermon, he's going to get killed in, in chapter 7. So anyway, I, getting off topic, but anyway, um, so the beauty of the leadership of the disciples say, you pick the men, um, full of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. They need to be people that you respect, whom we will appoint. So there is, after you pick them, there is a still be- beautiful leadership where they say, there's going to be by us whom you all agree were the leaders, a designation from us as leaders that they're now leaders and they're going to lead this. You can even see in verse six how they designated. It's, a, it's an ordination of some sense, if you will. And so they set them before the apostles. They prayed and they laid their hands on them. So Lord, these men are called to the social administration of the daily distribution of food, not just for the, for the Hellenists, but also for the Hebrews. And we want all of them that are widowed to get the food. We, we set these men out to be able to, take care of that so that that job's important. They'll do the social administration. We will continue in preaching and prayer. Beautiful, I mean, brilliant leadership. <clears throat> they, they put them in front of everybody so that everybody knows these men are chosen. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. So as they're doing that, which is absolutely important, this is where it gets interesting. Luke says in his, in his, in his, uh, in his writing, we will devote ourselves to ministry prayer and the ministry. You probably have ministry in ESV. Maybe some of you have service. Same word, diakonos. Now, why would Luke use 
a confusing term like diakonos, which later became a deacon of the word, if he's putting el, el, uh, deacons here. He, he wouldn't have used that. He wouldn't have used a confusing term to make you think elders are somehow deacons or apostles. Or so that's why I don't think it's... Anyway, back to the text. So we're going to devote ourselves to the diakonos or service of the word. You're going to do the service of the tables, verse 2. We're going to do the service of the word and prayer, verse 4. And so... I mean, amazing leadership here where they say, now that that's happened, just so everybody knows, we're all called to certain things. None of them's more important. That's your calling. Beautiful calling. It's absolutely essential. Can't do the church without it. This is our calling. We're gonna do this. Can't do the church without it. As we, as we all do this, then we're all moving forward properly on mission as the church. And this is where it gets even better. And what they said, please the whole gathering. Everybody, I mean, can you imagine the whole gathering, this, this, these were not Baptists. Like, there was no like, wait a second, I don't like the color of the carpet. 8,000 people are like, yes, and amen, let's do it that way. That's pretty awesome. That right there is without a doubt uh, evidence of Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was actually in all these people. Anyway, um, and here's something that's even more deep in the, in the solution, which if I wouldn't have known this because, you know, I don't know a lot about Greek names, but this is something even more beautiful. Another insight that I saw in the commentaries this week. Every one of these seven names are Greek names. Not an accident. So the brilliance of the, of the congregation is the Greek-speaking uh, widows are having a problem here. We're going to appoint Greek-speaking people from the minority. We're going to take from our minority and usher them into a position of leadership showing the minority who's being neglected that we care about you and you are important. Minority being ushered into leadership. Beautiful. So when you see who was, who was there, they pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen and they chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas. So you have seven, um, seven Greek men being ushered into leadership. So this is, this is beautiful. Uh, this is strategery, as George Bush would say. This is real concern for people saying, minorities, here, we have a real concern for you by not just saying, we're going to take care of you, but we're going to pull from the minority and actually give you leadership positions, put you in front of us, pray and ordain you so that everyone knows we care about minorities here and they are also going to be a part of the leadership structure. This is, br- this is fishermen. Redneck fishermen doing amazing things in leadership. So that's the solution. That's the solution that they do. So as we're looking at the solution, what are some applications that we can make for ourselves? One, leaders should not be dictatorial and just pronouncing what we're doing, but they should bring all concerned in, find a mutual so- solution so that everybody, for everyone. Two, leaders should not feel the tug. And this is, this is a normal tug, I think, for everybody. Feel the tug. When you feel the tug away from your calling to go do the other stuff, leaders need to delegate out, not because one's more important than the other, but the Lord has a calling for leaders. The Lord has a calling for the leaders of the social administration. The Lord has a calling for everyone. We need George to not be pulled away from, leading, from playing and lead. You don't want me doing that. Like you, we need him. So we need everybody to fulfill their calling. It doesn't mean that they can't do other things, but they, they, we should not pressure those that are clearly in their gifting to move away from that. Third thing that we can see is this, and I think maybe the most insightful part is this. Realize that the answers to our next pressing questions as a church, again, I'm talking about remedy. 
the answers to our next pressing questions in the church likely lies in the minority. And we need to listen to the minority and give them real leadership. Now, when I say minority, I don't just mean race. I do mean race, but I don't just mean race. It can mean, um, it can mean single people in the church uh, that are outside of college now. We have a good bit of those. You might feel, certainly with babies everywhere, in the minority here at Remedy Church. It doesn't mean that you're not important. The point that I'm trying to make is you're absolutely important. We want your voice, we want your giftings, and we want you knowing that you're crucial to the mission. Likely the next answers for us and the pressing questions that will come lie within you. We need you. It could be, it could even be children. You know, children might be in the minority here. You might have the ideas, children, of how we can move next in in the church. You might be six years old and have a great idea on how to answer something. So everyone that's in the minority, in whatever category you want to fulfill, I want you to know that you're needed, you're important, we absolutely need you, and I, I don't want you to feel that you don't have a voice, but I think you do. So as we look at those, those insights, let me ask, <clears throat> are you being involved in the answers and solutions for the church to keep us on mission? Are you being involved in being a part of pushing for the mission of the church in the city? Or are you scared or nervous or even worse, kind of just happily disinterested? Someone else is doing it. I can just not worry about it. Every one of you are part of the solution of pushing the, the mission forward in the church. Every one of you are gifted to help us in the preaching, in the prayer, in the ministration, or in the social administration as we reach the city, or a nice blend between the two. Or other things that we do as a church that aren't unbiblical, but certainly highlight and adorn the gospel, like worship, etc. The next thing I want to ask is, if you're a part of the minority at the church, race, just, or just a different you know, group that's not in the majority, doesn't have to be racial, I want you to consider that you're, you might be the answer to the next thing we're trying to figure out. And we want you to know that we, we absolutely want to hear your voice. I had someone come up to me between services and said, um, I'm glad you said that because I always feel nervous. I feel like I'm in a minority in this particular category and I always feel nervous to say anything. And now I know I don't have to be a chicken. Like I can actually come and say something. I was like, absolutely, please do. So the solution as we're looking at this um, helps us see that those... <coughs> And leadership need to stay as not feeling uh, called away from that leadership. And those that have the ideas need to step up and give their ideas and, and be a, a faithful part of the church, not uh, nervous or scared to say something or even worse, happily disinterested. All right, so what's the principle? Let me show you the principle. The, the first was the problem. The second was the solution. The third, here's the principle that I want to get at. And I'm using it the principle by, uh, and this is where we'll see the beauty of the gospel in the principle, is where we see the root word for deacon in, in this particular text. In verse one, it's the, the daily distribution or the daily service. In verse two, you can see the preaching of the word of the God to serve tables. And in verse four, you see, we shouldn't do anything uh, that jeopardizes uh, our position of prayer in the service of the word. So by Luke using the exact same word to describe, which is service or diakonos, by him using that exact same word of both the servers, the table waiters, and the apostles, which means deacon, 
by saying there's ministry or service of the word that the apostles are responsible or the service of the tables using that same word. I think what he's trying to say is there is no distinction of hierarchy between these two positions. Both are equally important. There's a service of the word. There's a service of the tables. It's, one's not more important than the other. Both are crucial. Both are even. Both are needed. Both are different. Both are different people with different callings and gifts. But both of them are needed to make the mission of the church go forward. That's the principle I think that he's trying to highlight for us is this. No one is more important than anybody else. Stott writes this. God calls all people to ministry. John Stott writes, God calls all people to ministry. You're in ministry just as much as I'm in ministry. I'm no more in ministry than you. You're in no, no more in ministry than me. We're all in ministry. No matter what you do, no matter what your vocation is, no matter how much or how little you share the gospel, you're still in ministry the exact same as me. I'm still in ministry the exact same as you. He calls all different people to all different ministries. And he says, that those that are called to prayer and the ministry of the word should not account themselves to be distracted with other things. And those that are, that are called to other things should not distract themselves to the prayer ministry of the word like an, like an elder would. It's not that there is never crossover. It's that when we know what we're the most gifted at, when we know that we're, what we're definitely called at, we should always stay true to that. We certainly can do other things. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Next one uh, that Stott says is that uh, neither ministry is superior to the other. Because he uses, I think the same word is highlighting for us that we all have different gifts and different callings. All Christians without exception because they're followers of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve are all called in ministry and should give their lives to ministry. And nothing's more important than the other. The principle is this. Here's the principle. No one is better than anyone else. No one is more important than anyone else. I'm not more important than you. You're not more important than me. We're all the exact same. We all have different gifts. We all have different callings. But we're all part of the same church. And I think this is, when I say no one's better than anyone else, this is what highlights for us the gospel. Because every one of us were equally lost. Every one of us were equally desperate for forgiveness. Every one of us were equally sinners in Christ in his goodness and mercy, not because one of us is better than the other, but only because of his grace, only because he is abounding in mercy, he would come and say, son, daughter, I'm calling you to trust in me for your forgiveness of sin. Jesus died for everyone, not because that they're better, but because he's gracious so those that would put their faith in him, it's not because they're smarter, it's not because they're better, it's not because they're, you know, not as, as intelligent. It's whoever you are, every one of you are equally in need of forgiveness. If you would put your trust and your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, you will be forgiven. It's that simple. So this highlights for us the beauty of the gospel that no one's better, that everyone needs Jesus and Jesus extends salvation to everyone the exact same. In an equal way, trust in what I've done on the cross. Trust the death, trust the burial, trust the resurrection and the imputed righteousness because he was perfect that he gives to you and that all of your sin was then therefore put onto him and you are completely forgiven now. And now you live because of that. What a beautiful gospel principle that this highlights for us. That every one of us, whenever that happens, are all now exactly equal now and a part of the same church 
and all responsible for living life as worshipers to forward the mission. There's no like forced hand here by God. Now that I've saved you, get on mission. It's, we say, now that he saved me, I want to live on mission. What else would I do? So here's the application for you. It's very simple. Acts 1.8. Every one of you that are Christians have been filled with the Spirit and now should be witnesses. Ma- Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Every one of you have been given the great commission to make disciples. John 20, 21. Every single one of you, Jesus is looking to say, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Application is this. Whatever your gifting or calling is, the principle is, every one of you, including me, are all on ministry and let's get busy with the business of making disciples. Let's all make disciples. If you make 25 million disciples and I make 25, perfect. That's the way God called it. If I make 25 million disciples and you make 25, perfect. That's the way God called it. But let's make disciples of those whom God has called us to make disciples. That's the principle. No one's better. Everyone's called. Everyone, let's get on ministry. Everyone, let's get on mission. The last thing I want you to see is this. We've seen the problem. We've seen the solution. We've seen the principle. What's the result? What happens whenever the apostles don't freak out and say, oh, what are they going to think of me? I better run over here and hand out bread so I, you know, no one thinks I'm bad. No, instead of, all right, the Lord's called me to, to, to the ministry of the word. I'm not better than that, and I will do it, but I'm not going to get off my calling. But instead, I'm going to delegate and let somebody else do that. And if they do that and I do this, the whole church operates right. What's the result whenever we live into our calling? Look at verse 7. Here's the result. It's awesome. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. More people are meeting Jesus. More people are getting saved. Let's just, that's what we want, right? That's what we want in Rock Hill. We want more people to come to Christ. So what's the result? And I want you to notice this. You can pass over it quickly, the details of the words. Look at verse seven. It doesn't say, and the church continued to increase. It doesn't say, and the number of disciples continued to increase. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. I think this is Luke kind of looking back at verse number two and tipping his hat and saying, the decision what they had when they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God, or in verse four, we need to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. It's Luke tipping his hat and saying, that decision from verse two was the right decision. Because in verse seven, the word of God continued to increase because those who were called to minister the word of God continued to do it, and therefore it increased. And then it says this, even better. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. We don't speak Greek, and we certainly don't know verb tenses of Greek, but side note, maybe not a side note, maybe more important, this is in the imperfect tense, which means it's just not like a kind of, it happened once, but this is actually uh, the two verbs spread and grow uh, of the church were actually in the imperfect tense means that it happened, and it continued to happen, kind of multiplication-oriented continues happen. Like, it wasn't like, boom, it happened once, and that's it. Instead, it's in the imperfect trying to say it happened, and it continually, continually happened in a multiplication kind of, kind of manner. So that's even better news. It wasn't like, and it just a few things, it's like, boom, explosion. They were obedient, and what did the Lord do? 
He blessed it. Now, that's pretty awesome, right? The word of God continued to increase. What their apostles were called to do continually happened. Continually people were called, but here's where it even gets better. This is maybe my favorite thing. In Acts chapter four, <coughs> remember I said the persecution was coming. That was the second distraction, if you will. First was kind of, you know, Ananias and Sapphira being lured into to money. The second was when the apostles, or when the disciples were, were preaching and being bold, they were pulled in and they were persecuted. Who were they persecuted against? Look at Acts chapter four, verse one. As they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching. Verse five, same chapter, four, five. On the next day, the rulers of the elders and the scribes gathered together with Jeru- in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. So here you have, in chapter four, clear, as you even go into chapter five, some of the persecutors trying to tempt the church away from mission were the priests. And what does God do? This is awesome. Look at verse seven. What does God do? Just to blow the disciples' mind in their obedience, the persecutors are now becoming followers of Jesus. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is Jesus just saying, just to kind of put on display how awesome I am, you were good in this little temptation of not being drawn off mission. I'm gonna show back, back on the other one where you were maybe drawn to leave because of persecution and the specific people that were doing it, the priests, I'm gonna save them. You're gonna see them get saved just so you can be like, God, you're awesome. You just blew my mind again. Thank you for keeping me on mission. Thank you for letting us set up this. And the persecutors are now becoming the followers of Jesus as well. Unbelievable. This is, these are the kinds of things that only God does. You couldn't think that up. I wouldn't think that up. God just says, just to mess with you. Watch this. Boom. People that are messing with you, like, they're saved now. How about that? How about that? Derek Thomas, quoting this, he says this, or commenting on this says, the fact that a large number of priests believe must have been the cause of great rejoicing among the Christian community. I would guess so, since they're persecuting me, and now they want to join me. That would make me happy. Like, hey, we're friends now. You don't want to kill me. I like that. Thank you. And then... Even better, this is even better. And this would also be great alarm among the Jewish leaders. So they're called in Acts 1-8 to go to the Gentiles. And you've got this other sect of religious people that they were called to the reach of the Gentiles and they're persecuting. And all of a sudden, not just the Gentiles, but the religious are coming to faith in Christ too. Like all kinds of categories in the disciples' minds are being blown. Everybody can get on this. That's awesome. As Derek Thomas says, it was a sign of extraordinary blessing upon the church and its ministry. So, God saves even the persecutors. As it says, they become obedient to the faith. That's that's interesting language. Don't have to unpack it. I really like the language. So here's some applications for us. As we finish this this, uh, text, here's some applications I want us to, to... make in our lives, to have happen in our lives. Number one, it's clear from this text that the disciples or the apostles were making sure that the word was going to be central in everything they did. They are 
going out of their way to say the ministry of the word must be central. We need to center ourselves on the word so that people can be saved. It has to be absolutely central, not just in our preaching, but in the lives of our people. The word is crucial. So first thing I want you to know is the word must be crucial. It must be absolutely centered in on in your life. You have to have the word of God, which means Christ, the absolute center of your life. And I'll just read one particular verse to you. This comes from Colossians chapter three. It says in Colossians chapter three, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That can't happen if the word is not central in your life. It needs to be central in the preaching of the word here at Remedy and Lord willing, the elders will always do that, but it also has to be central in your life. It can't just be central in your life for Sundays when I preach. It has to be central in your life every day as you live. The word must be central. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we sing the word together as we gather corporately. You sing the word, if you will, when you're at home. If you can't sing, you turn on the radio and sing with the radio because that's the best you can do. I mean, sometimes all you can do is play the radio. You can't play guitar, you can play the radio. Like, that's what you gotta do. But we have to have the word central. It's crucial. That's that's a clear application from this text. Second, we as a church, Remedy Church, not the church universal, which they should, but we as a church local should pray like crazy that verse one and verse seven happen. The results, verse one, they're increasing in number. The disciples are increasing in number because they're being faithful. Verse seven, the word of God continues to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. It says Jerusalem, we say Rock Hill when we pray. You need and I need to pray like crazy that we would see increase in number or multiply greatly here in this church. We won't, there is no move without prayer. There's a book I had to read called The Event of the Century, 1954 to 19, I'm sorry, 1854 to 1856. There's this thing that happened in New York called The Event of the Century. This, this guy Orr wrote it. In his opinion, it was The Event of the Century. In New York City, I've told this story before, in New York City, this man said, I want revival. I'm gonna make a bunch of flyers and hand write them all out. There's no Xerox and put them in a bunch of windows and say, prayer revival, Wednesday at noon. He put it out there, everybody. He went at noon, he's praying. No one showed up. The next week, like one person showed up. The next week, it was like eight. The next week, it was like 15. The next week, it was like, you know, 25 or to 30. And by the time that two years was over, millions were coming to revival and up until a million were saved in New York City. Here's the amazing part. It wasn't a pastor that led that. That's why this guy says it's the event of the century. It was a revival done by just a commoner in the church, just a regular guy, nothing special. I don't even know his name. He was not a pastor. And a revival broke out because it was centered in on prayer. It wasn't a, you know, Billy Graham crusade. It was a man, just a member of a church that said, Let's pray and have ongoing prayer for an hour during the business day. Millions get saved in New York City. Prayer must be crucial. And so we need to pray that verses one and seven happen. Next one. As we're seeing the the trajectory as we're going through the book of Acts, there's there's a tax coming on the church. So we need to be wide-eyed aware 
that the devil wants to sidetrack us away from mission, whether it be corruption, whether it be persecution, whether it be distraction, or name it something else, whether he wants to just make you lazy or that he just wants to make you love Netflix too much. He is going to do everything he can to keep you from being on mission. C.S. Lewis's book, oh, I forgot the name of it. Jack told me between services. Screw tape letters. Screw tape letters where you have one kind of demon training the other new demon on how to, how to mess with people in the church. And basically he just says, best thing to do, just keep them lazy. Keep them in church. Don't get them out of church. Keep them in church and lazy. That's the best thing that we can do. So that's the, the assault of the devil is to keep us lazy and in church. Let's be wide-eyed aware that that is what the, the enemy, if you will, wants us to do. He wants us to be sidetracked away from mission. So first, let's make the word central. Second, let's pray like crazy that we'd increase the number. Third, let's be aware that we're being attacked and stay on mission. Fourth <clears throat> is this. If you know your calling, if you know your giftings, step up. Like step up and get a part of the ministry It's not that we could use you. It's not that. It's not like, hey, we could use you. We need you. We will not do the mission well without you. You're crucial. We have to have you. So step up. Here's the fifth one. This is the last one. If you are in any type of minority in this church, likely the answers lie within you to our next pressing questions. And it doesn't have to be race. It could be, but it doesn't just have to be race. It could be anything. Whether you are a child, whether you're single, whether, whatever. I mean, I don't want to list out every category of minority that's possible. The whole point is, you are absolutely crucial. We want you to be an active part of this church. Step up, give ideas. And please, if the Lord has gifted you, step up in a leadership. We need you in leadership, which is what they did here. We can reach this city. We can be obedient to the mission that God's called us. We're going to go into a time of worship now where we sing to the Lord, where we sing to our Savior who has, because no one's better than the other, saved us. He has called us out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So we're going to go into a time of worship. I just ask that you be obedient here, however the Holy Spirit's leading If you need to talk, if you need to pray, find one of us. Otherwise, just stand and give him all the glory and let's worship here and then be sent out on mission. Let's stand and I'll I'll pray and we'll sing together in worship. Jesus, thank you for this time where we can come together, where we can worship and that we can be sent out on mission. We thank you that the gospel tells us that we're all desperate sinners and we all need you and that you call us not into just a family, but you call us into a mission. We get to be a part of seeing more people come to know Christ. Equip us, send us, and let us see great results. We pray this in Jesus' name.